I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 380. As you can probably tell from the sound of my voice, I'm recording this in a bathroom in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I've been staying for the last few days, right outside of Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. I am heading in a few hours to Richmond, Virginia, and actually that reminds me, on Tuesday, tomorrow, June 12th, 2012, I am doing a poetry reading in Richmond, Virginia at Chop Suey Books at 6 p.m. And if you can make it, I would love to see you there. Details are at jasoncrane.org. You can just click on the events page and it's all right there. So uh, tomorrow, June 12th, 6 p.m., Chop Suey Books in Richmond, Virginia, I'm doing a poetry reading as part of the Jazz or Bus Tour. I don't say tease very well, apparently, at the end of that word, so it always sounds like I'm saying jazz or bus which is really just as accurate as Jazz or Bust, since I'm getting everywhere by Greyhound. But it is actually the Jazz or Bust tour. I'm just, I guess, too lazy to enunciate. So I've had a great time here in D.C. I arrived a few days ago, went to a commemorative event for uh, the poet Gwendolyn Brooks, who passed away. This was a birthday celebration for her. And it featured uh, two wonderful poets, Kyle Dargan and Janice Harrington. And then I did an interview with the poet Sandra Beasley, which you'll hear at jasoncrane.org coming up. I also have seen some jazz shows. I saw a solo saxophone performance by Brian Settles the night that I arrived, and he'll be on the show coming up in a week or two. I saw a performance by Brad Lindy with Jeff Cosgrove in the band yesterday, and both of those guys will be on. Uh, Jeff Cosgrove will be on this week and Brad in another week or so. Jeff Cosgrove, coincidentally, is the guy I hooked up with in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. So everything kind of came full circle, which is really cool. Speaking of jasoncrane.org, I've been posting tour diaries there every day with photos and write-ups of the things I'm doing. And I've also started posting little interviews with people who just seem like it would be a crime not to get on tape. So the first one of those, posted under the Jazz or Bust bonus track title is an interview with Scott Schmied, who started his kind of academic life as a minimalist composer, primarily for vibraphone and piano. Uh, said Philip Glass is his favorite composer, and he was kind of writing in that style. And then, uh, after not getting into the grad school of his choice, he became a tree surgeon, built himself a wigwam, and he lives on the banks of the Potomac in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and builds washtub bases and takes care of trees and has a wigwam with a koi pond and a chandelier inside it. Uh, but anyway, there's a, about a 20-minute interview with Scott at jasoncrane.org and some audio of him playing both the washtub bass and the skiffle trap, which is uh, kind of a carry-it-on-yourself drum set with a washboard and a crash cymbal and cowbell and all that kind of cool stuff. Uh, and I really encourage you to hear that, and that's also under that Jazz or Bust bonus track. That's where Sandra Beasley's interview will be as well. 
Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the logo. He's online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel. I am online, obviously, at jasoncrane.org and thejazzsession.com, but you can also follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. This is also a great time to sign up for the mailing list because I'm sending out a lot of stuff about the tour only once a week, but I mean in each of those newsletters that goes out once a week. There's lots of links for upcoming events on the tour, places you can see me if you're interested in meeting me, uh, also the write-ups from the past shows, plus, of course, links to the Jazz Session episodes. Today's show is one I didn't even expect to record. When I went to State College, Pennsylvania, I was going primarily to visit family, and uh, there's not room for me to stay where my family is, so I always have to either stay in a hotel or I look for somebody to stay with. And this time, through the good graces of my friend Amy Servini, who of course has been on the show a couple times, she had a friend who had a friend who had a friend who had a place. And so I stayed in this house with this guy, Russell Bloom, super nice guy. He is an administrator at uh, Penn State, which is in State College. And also works in the musical theater, very talented uh, musical theater director. And Russell told me that right down the street from where we were staying was Barry Kernfeld. Barry Kernfeld is kind of a legendary name in the world of jazz scholarship. He edited the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. He wrote a very famous book called What to Listen for in Jazz. And he was right down the street. I mean, literally, he was like a two-minute walk from the house I was staying in. So I called Barry out of the blue uh, the night that I arrived, said, you know, you don't know who I am, I'm sure, but this is what I'm doing, and can we sit down and do an interview tomorrow? And Barry said, you know, I'm not really sure I would be all that interesting in an interview, but if you want to come by, come by. It would be fun to chat anyway. I'm in State College. I don't have to talk that much about jazz. So I went by the house. I did bring all my gear, and I said, you know, I, I think we should put this all on tape. And we did, and I'm so glad, because I think this turned out to be one of the more fascinating episodes of the Jazz Session. Uh, it's just a conversation about the incredible life that Barry's had, and putting together one of the major works of scholarship on jazz. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. I know I did. So without further ado, uh, we take you now to State College, Pennsylvania, and Barry Kernfeld. My guest is Barry Kernfeld, who's had uh, an amazing life in jazz so far, and it continues, and it's a real pleasure to, to meet you and talk to you. Thanks for being here. Well, it was a fun phone call out of the blue. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, we're here in State College, Pennsylvania, where I am on part of my tour, and uh, I did not know you lived here until I arrived, and when I found out, I was really excited to get a chance to sit down with you. And you've had such a, a, a storied career in the music, uh, and I thought we could maybe just start out with what first piqued your interest in in jazz when you were growing up in on the west coast oh gosh you know i i don't even remember in a way i was too young to even know what it was sure i've thought about this many times um my dad had one of those uh crystal radio sets where you don't even need any power you just take an alligator clip and connect it to the lamp and you'd get radio and I'm guessing I was eight years old. I'm guessing it was maybe Bobby Darren's Mac the Knife on, you know, big band kind of jazzy kind of thing. Something something that I heard when I was really young just knocked me out compared to anything else that I heard. And um, I was for years just, you know, trying to find places to hear jazz and then 
you know, I, I don't even know quite how to tell this story, just gravitating towards that and growing up in San Francisco and also being deeply immersed in rock mm. and that whole, I mean, the jazz thing I was really too young for. I was too young to go to clubs. Anything I was going to hear was be on the radio or um, on record. The music that I heard live was this this emerging San Francisco scene. And I sort of, that was my experience of music as a, as a young person and a teenager and trying to play jazz on the side and trying to hear whatever I could. I, but it wasn't really until college that I became completely immersed in jazz and sort of discarded the other things. Is it too much of a stretch to say that even that emerging rock scene in San Francisco at that time contained a fair amount of improvisation? I mean, I it think people like the great Dead and Santana and Hendrix and all those people who were doing long extended performances. The Big Brother and the Holding Company, before sure. they acquired Janis Joplin, rehearsed in a fire station about three blocks from my house. <laughs> and they had... Uh, Sears Dan Electro amplifiers, you know, like the cheapest right. kind of thing. Um, but we would go up there, my friend and I. He was, I had a cutting edge friend who, if, if something was coming along, James Judnick was his name. If it was skateboarding, uh, uh, if it was music, unfortunately for James also, if it was drugs, um, he, he was there. You know, oh man, there's this great new band coming to the Fillmore. They're called Cream. You know, <laughs> and so he, you know, even a couple of years before Cream, he he discovered that Big Brother was rehearsing in this fire station at the corner of Spruce and Sacramento uh, in San Francisco. It was a, a, a defunct fire station. You know, not used for anything. And to get around to your question, yes, they were. It was an improvisational band. It was uh, harmonically much simpler than jazz. But uh, on the path to what the intersection would, between jazz and rock would be in later years. Now, mm. I mean, there wasn't any kind of jazz fusion then. This was too early. This was maybe 65. Uh, but, yes, the, the improvisation, I was always interested in, in that kind of thing. Now, had you already started playing the saxophone as a as a child, kind of in the traditional way in school by this point? Or? Yeah, I started on clarinet, the usual thing, mm -hmm. fourth grade clarinet, seventh grade saxophone. Um, I had a really nice teacher. His name was Al Cicerone, and he played in musical theater professionally in San Francisco. And so when he found out how interested I was in saxophone, even though he was a clarinetist, he he showed me chords, you know, he told me the whole, gave me the whole education in in um, uh, sort of fake book uh, theory. And uh, he also gave me a bunch of tunes, which at that point were completely foreign in my life. I had no idea. These were, you know, standards of the 1930s and 40s that are, you know, I know really well now. I had no idea what this music was. <laughs> Blue moon, you find right. me standing alone. <laughs> what is this? It's so corny. And he'd have me learn those 
for my lessons and uh, very grateful for that, looking back on it. Now, I know in, in 75 you came east to go to Cornell, so it seems like somewhere before that there must have been something that turned this interest in music from an interest into something you decided you were going to focus more of your your time on. Yeah. Um, looking back on it, you know what it was? It was that I was going to do music somehow and I was going to try different paths and as they failed, I'd tick them off and try something else. Uh, I wanted to be a player more than anything, but I wasn't good enough. I wasn't close to good enough. I saw what it was to be a professional musician, and I didn't have it. Uh, I went to Berkeley during the turmoil years, Eldridge Cleaver and Sociology 139X and People's Park and the Cambodia protests and that whole thing. Ended up dropping out of school April of 1970, and I tried to be a musician. Two and a half years. Utterly failed. I had a scholarship to the University of California, and they let me keep it. When I withdrew, I didn't... Uh, didn't just disappear one didn't day. Didn't just right. disappear. <laughs> or rather, I, I think it, the terminology was I, I took a leave of absence rather than withdrawing. Okay. And I I realized finally that I would make more money a month from my scholarship than I was playing. (laughs) So, you know, okay, tick that off. Next thing to try, I'm going to be a music major. And uh, compared to the people in uh, my class, I had a lot of experience just from having to try to be a professional musician, even if I didn't make it. And I knew a lot of things they didn't. I knew absolutely nothing about classical music, and the teacher would be standing there, of course, in as you know, in Beethoven's Fourth Symphony. And I, you know, I'd never heard Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, so that part was real deep immersion in classical music and getting to know that history and theory and vocabulary. And so. I took uh, the required courses, and in the first music history course that I took, there was a term paper to do, and I got my term paper back, you know, not figuring anything special. And it said, A double plus, how is it that this paper is so much better than the others? And that was a complete shock to me. I didn't know I had talent as a writer, and particularly writing about music. I had no idea. Um, So I started down that path. Um, Can I do something writing about music? I uh, worked with a man named Kern Holloman, who was a specialist in Hector Berlioz, and learned a lot about musicology, and decided to try to get a PhD in musicology, expecting no one would ever let me do jazz. And then I came east to Cornell to to do that PhD and discovered the orchestra conductor was a bebop pianist, the the Haydn string quartet specialist had all these Miles Davis and John Coltrane records, 
there was a man on staff teaching history of jazz. Um, the medieval Spanish Gregorian chant specialist had been a cocktail trumpeter in Panama. <laughs> you know, like I you mean, do. <laughs> and William Austin, who uh, was a 20th century music specialist, sort of incorporated Louis Armstrong into his pantheon of the greatest 20th, 20th century musicians. So completely unknowingly, I stumbled into this place where they were supportive of my doing a dissertation, a PhD on jazz. And I think it's important, especially for you know young people younger than I am who are listening to this, to put that in some kind of context. I mean, because at the time that you're talking about, if you went to any music school, jazz was a four-letter word. There were not conservatories that had a jazz major. You could not you could not study that generally as a as a academic course. So this seems like a very progressive environment that you were. It was that completely you were amazing, and you're right. And it was sort of big band or bust. There was nobody interested in combos. If if there, I mean, jazz was beginning to come into the schools by this time, mm. but it was a big band thing and very much of a white thing. And with me liking black combo improvisation, that was that was un, unusual and unexpected that they would support me in that. Was it a big band thing because that was easier to codify because it was in the form of arrangements with short solos and it was easier to teach as a as an academic discipline, do you think? Or am I maybe I'm a far I afield? I think on that's that. one of the reasons. I think another reason is it was a way in which many uh, brass and reed players could participate. I think it was, it was it was a demographic thing. You had all these kids coming out of high school bands and uh it, it it gave them something else to do. They could do a jazz thing as well as a marching band thing, as well as a concert band thing. Um, I think it was also that there was no educational framework in place as there is now at Manhattan School, New School, William Patterson, and on and on and on, of jazz musicians, professional jazz musicians qualified to coach improvisation because it was a different skill set. And I mean, I'm not a bad player. I, you know, I, I, I'm a good local professional. There's people who really like my playing. I don't mean to say that I was a failure professionally. I just wasn't anywhere near good enough to make a career out of it, but that I had a decent skill set. And I remember when they had some uh, I, oh, I should mention, I went to UC Davis, University of California, Davis, when I was a music major. No, I didn't go to back to Berkeley. I didn't like Berkeley. And when I was at Davis, they had some difficulties with their first alto player um, in the big band and asked if I would sit in one day. And uh, I was mainly a tenor player, but I had an alto sax. And... I sat in and, and pretty much nailed it. And they were amazed that I could read music because they thought they're, they're listening to me practice in the tenor in the, in the practice room and figuring that I was just one, you know, an improvising guy and didn't have music literacy in, in that way. So there, there wasn't someone there who could have said, uh, okay, we're going we're gonna to sit down 
and and do blue boss and satin doll and work our way through some simple tunes and learn how to improvise on them. That environment was not in place at all. Now, your if I'm correct, your PhD dissertation uh, focused on improvisation in Miles Davis' sextet with John Coltrane. Is that yeah. right? Can and, you talk uh, about that and and how you uh, more about the dissertation? And what I just said doesn't really mean too much. Um. Yeah, I don't know if anyone would be interested, but I'll give it a This is the kind of listenership that would be interested, I think. Okay. What I was trying to do was to get at the question of how do people go about improvising and to answer that question in a deeper way than jazz education usually does because jazz education is absolutely fixated on the idea of a chord scale. You get this situation, you play that pitch. And there's so many other things to, to music, uh, melody and timbre and phrasing and articulation um, and procedures. What is the procedure for picking that pitch? And it struck me, I did my dissertation on Kind of Blue and Milestones, those two albums. It struck me that this was a crucial moment uh, in jazz history where the technique changed because the structures on which they were improvising changed to so-called modal jazz. And modal jazz is, you know, kind of a confusing concept, but I think the simplest way to think about it, it's a slowing down of harmonic rhythm. The chords are static or they move at a very slow pace by comparison with what came before in bebop and cool jazz and hard bop. You might have a single harmonic uh, basis for four bars or eight bars or 16 bars rather than one chord per bar or even two chords per bar. Uh, In some cases, like so what, you also had a slowing of the rhythm itself. So not just a slowing of harmonic rhythm, the rate at which the harmonies change, but a slowing of the rhythm. This presents a challenge to the improviser. What do you do? It's different. Um, People who've uh, looked at how Charlie Parker went about things came up with this explanation that he had uh, many, many formulas that he plugged into different chords in an absolutely brilliant, genius way, making them into a seamless, uh, improvised melody. But the basis for it was that what he was doing fit with the continuously changing harmonic accompaniment. What do you do when the harmonic accompaniment is static, as it is in the title tune of Milestones, as it is in So What, as it is for portions of all blues where you just and what I came to realize was that I think Coltrane started it Coltrane was uh, completely changing his way of going about playing from using a formulaic model based on Charlie Parker's uh, legacy to motivic development, taking an idea and changing its shape or putting it at a different pitch level 
or uh, ornamenting it, that he was repeating ideas. Um, Adderley picked up on this. Uh, I'm just, you know, because of what I was singing, his solo popped into my head. Do, 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 I think that's Adderley's solo, mm-hmm. something like that. Uh, so this three-note thing, do 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 do, and then he develops that idea. Let, let me back up for a minute and explain this from the other side. So motivic improvisation—that's what Beethoven did. Not, I'm sorry, motivic composition. Sure, that's what Beethoven did. Um, Beethoven spent huge effort, as we know, uh, writing this out and changing his ideas and scrawling new versions to make it work. Motivic improvisation is not something that almost any human being can do well improvised over a fast-changing chord thing. It's just too hard to hit the right notes. But when the notes are... uh, when the when the harmony is slow, when it's stretched out, that opens a new possibility for constructing melody in a different way. So that, in a nutshell, is what my dissertation was about. How did Davis and Adderley and Coltrane and Bill Evans change their approach to making melodic structures in an improvised setting with this new music that's come in that we've come to know as modal jazz. Was there any precursors to this in, for example, Coleman Hawkins' famous solo on Body and Soul or something like that? Is that a Was that kind of an attempt to before modal jazz really existed to use this almost this motivic idea with a more fixed chord structure? No, I would say it was, it was quite the opposite that he was in the formulaic thing where he's, he's uh, playing out uh, arpeggios and uh, other sorts of ideas that fit the harmonies. I, I don't hear that kind of uh, development of an idea in Hawkins. Okay. That makes sense. So where the one place I do hear it, and I wrote about this in in one of the books that I did later, uh, is uh, Sonny Rollins on St. Thomas. Mm. Uh, it's it's the only place that I've seen a, a musician pull off uh, motivic improvisation over a changing chord pattern, and it's you know it took someone of Rollins' stature to be able to do it. And I'm not saying that he consciously said, oh, I'm going to do a motivic improvisation. You know, no, ridiculous. Right. <laughs> but uh, his musicality led him to do that on on that classic recording with Max Roach back in, what, 56 or whenever mm-hmm. it was, 58, I don't remember. Uh, I haven't heard anyone else do that. It's too hard. It's just impossible. And as people... Uh... I think, for example, of you know or, Ornette Coleman and folks like that, as they, in that case, where not only are we sometimes slowing down the the harmonic rhythm, but we're casting it aside mm-hmm. completely. Does that force you into a place of motivic improvisation because there is nothing else to rely on, or do you have other other options in those situations? Ah, uh, uh, okay. So let let me back up again. 
I, I think the, the procedures that people use are paraphrase, which is to say uh, taking an existing melody and ornamenting it. The Louis Armstrong would be the, the giant of that technique. Uh, formulaic improvisation, as I was talking about Parker, and motivic improvisation, Coltrane after 1960. But uh, those are by no means rigid categories. The 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 reality of the fluidity of music, the the one uh, elides into the other depending upon the situation in which you're playing, and so. I think for free jazz slash avant-garde jazz, it really depends on the tune and what they're playing. I don't think you can make a generalization about that. I'm going to duck that question. That's fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well ducked, sir. <laughs> so after you uh, wrote this dissertation and received a PhD, what seemed like the natural course? Where, how did you decide what to do next, and how did you end up doing what you did next, which well, lasted there was for quite no a long pros- time? Sorry, there was no prospect for me ever getting a job doing jazz as musicology. Mm. Maybe nowadays there would be. But sure. There, there, you know, now, now there's maybe three jobs like that in the world. <laughs> then there were zero. So first um, there's a murder, and then you get the job. When yeah. the <laughs> and so um, my wife did have jazz uh, jazz. My wife did have uh, professional prospects as a historian, uh, and um, I taught the history of jazz class at Cornell, sort of hung on while she finished her dissertation. She was a few years behind me, and got into this reference book thing when the man who was supposed to do all the jazz and blues and uh gospel and uh, rhythm and blues and ragtime and related African-American musical things for the new edition of the Harvard Dictionary of Music didn't come through. And I went into his office and said sort of jokingly, do you have any employment for, an, uh, for a f- recent PhD? And he let me do the whole shebang. Um, so I did all, about 100 things on that and I did real overkill on that I just worked really hard on that and, and what did that mean where the, the verb did in this sentence is, is oh. condensing a lot of <laughs> work into three letters um, my wife had a Smithsonian fellowship and I spent the year I got a, a stacks pass to the Library of Congress and I spent the year doing research on blues and gospel and jazz and soul and funk and trying to write scholarly uh brief definitions of these for the Harvard Dictionary of Music, trying trying to put them in a, in a musicological way, trying to explain those things as music, not just as cultural phenomena. And in turn, that led to me being asked to write some articles for the Grove Dictionary of American Music. And I was at a conference in 1983, and I said to the Stanley Sadie, the principal editor for Grove Dictionaries, have you ever thought about having a new Grove Dictionary of Jazz? And he said, no, but send me a proposal. And I let that go for a little bit because I knew it would be 
overwhelming 60, 70 hour a week kind of job until we f I found out what was happening to us. Because if I had to keep on teaching, I couldn't have done the Grove Dictionary. But then my wife got this job here at Penn State. So I sent my proposal and to my astonishment, they accepted it. And uh, so I became editor of the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. Go figure. <laughs> now, uh, in in retrospect, now that we have all of those nice volumes to look at, it seems like a completely logical and easy to understand thing. But you started with a blank page. Yes. How did you go from a blank page to, okay, this is how I begin actually putting together the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz? Ooh, hard question. <laughs> um, com part of it is compiling lists of names, uh, you know, who do you think should be in it? Um, and we're talking about now about conceptualizing the book or about gathering the information. You're talking about conceptualizing. I'm talking more about conceptualizing, actually, yeah, than I'd because, be interested in knowing how you did the other. Well, it's actually the conceptualizing was more interesting, I think. Um, and I learned so much from the, the London folks at Grove Dictionaries because they had so much experience doing this for classical music and American music and uh, just thinking in ways that I hadn't thought before. And so was Grove, Grove was a company that produced exclusively reference works on music? Uh, George Grove, I believe his name, was one of these late 19th century uh, English Renaissance men. I think he was maybe an Egyptologist or something like that, uh, who on his own did the first... A dictionary of music in I think the 1880s. By the time I got into it, uh, they were working on the, they had just published the sixth edition of the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians. They were working on the first edition of the New Grove Dictionary of American Music. So this was now a century long tradition of writing mainly about classical music. Okay. And they were starting to work on a New Grove Dictionary of Opera and I was carrying them into a completely foreign sphere as far as the topic. But as far as being able to think about music, that, that was fantastic with them. And the thing about a Grove, they call it a dictionary, not an encyclopedia, because they didn't just want you to talk about the history of whatever that entry was. They wanted you to define it which gets tricky at times. And I, I think the, the greatest lesson for me, the one on which I was the most duh stupid, was understanding their conception of instruments. Because I was immersed in the jazz literature and this concept of lineage and discussing instruments in terms of people. And... Armstrong and Beiderbecke led to so-and-so, led to so-and-so, led to Dizzy Gillespie, blah, blah, blah. And they had to just knock me over the head about 10 times before I realized, we're not interested in saxophonists. We're going to have articles on saxophonists. We're interested in the saxophone. How was the saxophone used in jazz? Don't tell me about Benny Carter. Tell me about the saxophone, how is it used? And when I finally got it, that was a revelation of, you know, 
how to think about music and how to think about terms. So the big challenge conceptually for Grove was to give a comprehensive view of uh, not just people, but styles, uh, musical performance terms like doit and rip and gliss, entry on every instrument that's used in jazz, how is it used, um, entries on procedures like arrangement, improvisation, About two, two and a half years in, I had a complete panic because the publisher sat me down in New York and said, we have to have entry on all the, all the nightclubs. That was daunting. No one had ever done that before. That, in retrospect, turned out to be the greatest thing that we did in the Grove Dictionary, was to make an international historical catalog of, uh, what, we, what did we call it, nightclubs and other venues. We did the same thing for festivals. So, why did that turn out to be the greatest thing you did? Um, I guess because it was the newest thing. It was the thing that no one else had even tried before. It was the most original bit of it, and because it was so well received, I think uh, a lot of people, you know, were very apprehensive why is a musicologist from State College, Pennsylvania writing articles or editing articles rather on jazz musicians? What business did I have doing that? Why, why isn't Leonard Feather good enough? Um, and so I think there was a much better reception of the nightclubs thing that was new and people found it really useful in it, just in the practical day-to-day of jazz life, of the jazz life to be, you know, if you had a radio show or something, to go in there and be able to look up these clubs all over the world and find their history. So were you just focused on, on extant clubs, or were you talking about clubs that had existed but no longer? Yes, did? we did a history all okay. the way back, as far as we could. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's clear or if you would even have reason to know, there's two editions of the Grove Dictionary. Mm-hmm. Uh, finished one in 88, started again, did a much more massive one from the late 90s, published in 2001. Three million words by that point. Everything greatly expanded, including that nightclub's catalog. Okay, so now you've, you have some, some concept of what the book should be. And is this, uh, is this literally something you put together yourself or were you did you have collaborators to actually do the legwork of writing the thing and going into the stacks and we used every possible source we could get our hands on um there were about 250 300 contributors from around the world that's another thing about grove another mandate like the nightclubs it was going to be an international dictionary of jazz it wasn't going to be jazz in america um, we sent out questionnaires when we could, you know, um, I spent a lot of time at the Institute of Jazz Studies in Newark trawling through stuff. There's, uh, anything was fair game. Penn State 
here in State College, for reasons unknown, has an even better collection of jazz literature than Cornell did, which I did not expect when I came here. It was a complete surprise. Somebody extending back to the 1960s had collected uh, the core jazz magazines. And so I was able to just purchase things to supplement that rather than having to start from scratch. So a lot of time trawling through um, primary and secondary sources trying to find stuff out. This is probably a, a horrible question, but uh, uh-huh. as you as you think back, are, were there some moments where you can remember coming across something that changed the way you thought about a person or an instrument or a, a club or something that you had always just taken as read that you discovered was, in fact, untrue as you did the research to put the dictionary together? Um, I'm not sure I can give you an example, but this happened so often. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost more surprising when it didn't happen, maybe, right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, think, I think my favorite one was Helen Hume's birth date. Because, you know, I didn't do this as a fact and figures kind of guy. I'm not, not that kind of person. I did it because I was absolutely passionate about jazz and wanted to know everything I could about it. I don't care about dates, even though... I'm hysterically careful about trying to get them right. I don't care about dates per se. I can't tell you Miles Davis's birth date. I don't memorize that kind of stuff. But I care about dates in historical context when they have meaning. Um, and there's all this misinformation going around in jazz, and some still surviving in the Grove Dictionary, though we got rid of huge amounts of it about birth dates. People seem to be obsessed with birth and death dates. I'm not sure why. I don't particularly care, except when it has historical meaning. And this one really struck me because it did. And what happens a lot in the entertainment world is people give out their birth dates to make themselves younger or older, depending on the situation. Maybe they want to get into a club when they're too young to get in. Maybe they want to present themselves as a young phenom when they're actually a few years older. Uh, for whatever reason, Helen Humes was thought to be uh, born in 1913 in most sources. And I'm going to interrupt you right there just to tell people quickly who Helen Humes was. Who oh, uh, sorry. A great blues singer sang with the Basie Band. Um, African-American singer on the edge of blues and jazz and pop. Um, and she, um, where was I? No, Thought to be born in 1913. 1913. Sure. So there I was at the Institute of Jazz Studies going through their jazz oral history program transcripts because they, they came upon a lot of stuff that just wasn't anywhere else. And she's saying something to the effect, oh, yeah, I was put out that I was born in 1913. I put out that I was born in 1913, but actually it was 1909. And suddenly all this stuff became clear because it it had a historical context. She was a schoolmate of Al Sears, who was a tenor saxophonist 
phonist with Duke Ellington and some other people. There was this little sphere of musicians who played together. Well, it turned out they went to school together, you know, maybe all the way back to grammar school. I don't remember the details, certainly to high school, you know. And to me, that sort of stuff is really important. Uh, Making claims... We're living in a world in which technology disseminates sound so quickly that stuff changes month by month, not even year by year. And if you're one of these, pardon my French, don't give a shit about facts, jazz people, and you get the dates wrong, and you start talking about stuff that simply couldn't happen because the dates are wrong, or backwards, you're attributing innovation and greatness to somebody who did something three years after it happened, then, you know, to me, why not try to get it right? Mm. Hmm. You mentioned uh, in a a passing way some uh, resistance or or commentary on the fact that a guy in State College, Pennsylvania, was was putting together uh, this work. I, I wonder... As you started to, uh, or as people started to see the results of what you were doing, were there were there controversial things in the in the Grove Dictionary of Jazz? Were there things that that flew in the just what we're talking about kind of flew in the face of the accepted reality, and and people uh, were were angered by, or surprised by, or caused uh, conversations? I don't think it was the book content that was controversial. I would think it was the fact that Grove did a a jazz dictionary that upset a lot of people. Why is that? Um, Because we were uh, sort of preconceived as uh, outsiders, uh, musicologists, uh, Jean Lees wrote that Hatred of the New Grove Dictionary is of jazz is the first thing that has ever united the jazz community. <laughs> I hope that's on your business card. <laughs> so, um, what happened? I wrote a book called What to Listen for in Jazz uh, in the interim between the two uh, volume two editions of Grove, and it was a really successful book. I have, in fact, read it. And I think people discovered that I wasn't just an outsider dabbling in jazz. And the cooperation with the second Grove Dictionary was fantastically different and better and it's such a better edition than the first one because of that cooperation so something changed and in my opinion it was not because of grove but because i wrote this other book and the hostility went away did gene make his comment about the first yes, edition that was, okay that was in 1988 when okay. it came out oh that's really fascinating yeah and it wasn't the only thing of that ilk it was it was the most intense of that ilk mm. but it wasn't the only one so in the years since uh, the second edition was published what's been the what's been the state of updates on the new grove dictionary um there have been none because the economics of 
reference books changed with the advent of the Internet. Uh, it became clear in 2001 that there was financial support to continue the classical music uh, updating. A Grove became Grove Online. Um, Macmillan Press of London sold Grove Dictionaries to Oxford University Press in New York in 2003. Now it's Ox Oxford Music Online, I believe. The second edition of the Grove Jazz is there online as a part of it. But the resources available for updating are not in the area of jazz. So I haven't been involved at all for the past 11 years. Uh, I mean, I'm friends with them. I, you know, once in a while review books for Oxford or whatever. We, uh, occasionally something comes up with the dictionary that they will ask me about when somebody says, oh, this is wrong. And I'll say, well, actually, no, here's the documentation. <laughs> you know, uh, I know from friends who were contributors that they have personally as individuals updated their articles. Uh, but there's been no systematic uh, work on jazz as a Grove entity since 2001. And I think that for financial reasons, there is no prospect of their being. I can continue to call myself the editor of the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. I am. There hasn't been any other... <laughs> That doesn't mean I'm doing anything on it. I'm sure. doing other stuff. Which makes me sad because, I mean, a huge part of the reason that I do what I do uh, is because I looked around and realized that no one was talking to musicians of a certain generation. I mean, the many of the greats who had gone before had, uh, you know, extensive documentation of uh, their their lives and stories, and very few people did, uh, you know, around yeah. my age and younger. And I saw on your website you've got just one new person after the next, hundreds of them. Yeah, uh, interviews, hour-long interviews that would be, you know, the resource for Grove Three, <laughs> right? But uh, it ain't going to happen. Sure. So I'd like to move on now to uh, what you've been occupying your time with in the last several years, which are two. Uh, I'll be completely honest; I haven't read either of them because I didn't know they existed until yesterday. Uh, but they look very fascinating, and I will absolutely uh, dig into both because they really hit me right where I live. One is uh, the story of fake books, bootlegging songs to musicians. And as a guy who has gone into many back rooms and music stars, in fact, I think I actually, in the early 90s, uh, right after I got married and came to State College briefly with my wife at the time, went into a music store here, went into a back room and got a, updated my copy of the real book. Uh, and that used to be how you how you did it. So can you say something about fake books, what what they are, and particularly in a jazz context, what the real book meant uh, to people practicing jazz? Uh, fake books, as I learned when I did this thing, uh, originated in pop music, not in jazz. Mm. And what they are are sh uh, compilations of tunes, anthologies of tunes collected into a single volume uh, where each tune is compressed to a, maybe a third of a page or a half a page or at most a single page in this volume, giving you a melody and chord symbols and, depending on the fake book, perhaps lyrics also. And they originated in 1949 in uh, as a vehicle for 
cocktail lounge musicians to honor requests that people were making in clubs. Can you play so-and-so? Well, uh, there's a few phenomenal musicians who have 5,000 tunes in their head, but most of us, even the best players, don't remember everything. And if you have a little book that you can refer to, you can uh, go to the index, find what page the tune is on, get a, a shorthand version of it, and fake your way through it, hence the title, Fake Books. Are um, they by nature uh, published without the consent of the people who own the rights to that, to that sheet music? The thing is, the music publishers from 1949 until the early 70s refused to put out authorized versions of these because they felt they were digging into sheet music sales. Mm. And so it was only through uh, quote-unquote gangster channels that you could get a fake book. Um, nobody wants to carry a thousand pieces of loose, loose sheet music to a gig. It's just ridiculous. But the music publishers refused to, to accept that idea. They expected you'd just carry sheet music around. And somehow you're going to leaf through all that in 30 seconds and find the tune that you want to honor somebody's request. I mean, it was ridiculous. Uh, they, there were FBI investigations. Uh, there were trials for conspiracy against the United States of America. Uh, they tried for more than two decades to suppress this. And then finally, in the early 70s, they capitulated and put out pop song fake books, which immediately suppressed the bootleg market because the legitimate market had good distribution and the bootleggers were resorting to car trunks, as you said, and, and underneath the counter in music stores. Sure. So this happened in pop music. The jazz fake books came later. The first was in the late 60s, around 1968. And the important was the real book, which came out of the Berklee School of Music in 1975. And that market has been small enough that uh, for a long time there were no prosecutions of it. They just let it ride. There were numerous attempts to come out with fake books that were better than the real book, but they weren't better. And people kept using the real book. Finally, in a t I think it was 2006, Hal Leonard Publications put out a close to the same version called the real book, sixth edition. There had been five bootleg editions um, as a legitimate one with licensing paid to the songwriters. But then they couldn't get some, a few of the best tunes, couldn't get licensing agreements for those. So those aren't in there. So everybody still uses the real book as far as I know. You know, and for people who are listening who have never spent a time as actual performers of jazz, I mean, the real book is so ubiquitous that it, it is common to just say, oh, we're going to get together and just play tunes out of the real book. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it's just a thing. It's like we're going to get together and read things out of the Bible. I mean, it's the same. It, it is everywhere. It is everywhere. And if you spend any time playing on a bandstand with a combo, you have a real book. I mean, it's just part of, yes. of the world of jazz. It was very tastefully done. The repertory in it is uh, – there's some eccentric things, but there are so many tunes in there that are just – what people want to hear from many different kinds of jazz gigs. I mean, there was some years back here, there were some Brazilian grad students having a 
going away graduating party, and they wanted us to do a you know all samba and bossa nova night. Well, get out your real book. <laughs> <laughs> there it was. Yeah, and I've played everything from that to I mean. You know, 500 Miles High is mm-hmm. in there. I mean, it's it's an amazing wealth There's of music. There's free jazz tunes in there. That sure. Coleman stuff. Yeah. Uh, Matheny. And then standards. All sorts of standards. Uh, both pop standards and jazz standards. So we're obviously scratching the surface, but folks should get the story of fake books <laughs> by Barry Kernfeld. And now, uh, we in the few minutes that we have left, take me to uh, pop song piracy. Well, what happened with fake books? I'm taking you there first, was here I had been playing out of fake books for maybe 20 years and being a musicologist working on jazz for 20 years. And never for one moment did it occur to me that maybe the one activity had something else to do with the other. (laughs) I, I mean, I'm there playing in the coffee shops, looking at the fake books. The whole band has the fake books. I'm weaning myself off the fake book, learning the tunes finally, not using the fake book. Fake book is part of my life. I'm sitting there doing the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz. Duh. I don't know why, but one day it struck me, where did these things come from? And I started looking into that and stumbled on these FBI investigations and got stuff from the Freedom of Information Act and came upon these court trials. And uh, this whole world of of bootlegging uh, notated music opened up. So I was doing that, this series of questions leading to more questions, and I came upon a circuit court appeal, a decision in, in a circuit court, on a conviction of John Santangelo for selling bootleg song sheets. What's a bootleg song sheet? Well, this opened up into a whole book. Uh, What's a bootleg song sheet? In in a nutshell, uh, with the advent of radio and television, uh, sorry, radio and television, the advent of radio and recordings and musical film uh, in the 1920s, people's relationship with the piano in the home fade away. People became more uh, sort of passive receptive in their relationship with music. They didn't need music anymore. They didn't need sheet music. They were content to have lyrics. It was a precursor of what would happen with fake books. The music publishers refused to sell these lyric-only sheets, the song sheets. They wanted to make their money from selling sheet music, which was much more expensive. And so the quote-unquote gangsters started putting out song sheets, compilations of lyrics for a nickel or a dime. You get a hundred songs for a dime, or you can get one piece of sheet music for 30 or 35 cents. It's the depression. Which are you going to get? Sure. Um, And so this opened up into this this whole study, and what I'm doing in pop song piracy is showing that there is a generational prehistory of Napster and MP3 files and iTunes and that whole uh, controversy. We've been living this before. In fact, it's uh, uh, a man who I was talking to made the uh, comparison to immigration, and I'd love to steal his idea from him. Uh, It's as if we relearn how to deal with immigration every couple of generations. 
we're relearning how to deal with music piracy every generation. So in this book, I start with these song sheets and then song sheets, fake books, music photocopying, pirate radio, record piracy, tape piracy, album bootlegging, CD piracy, and now song sharing, uh, downloading. So it's more the medium that's changing than the the activity. The the idea of yes, piracy is remaining the same. There's this repeated pattern of attempts at prohibition which fail, and then the people who think they're the song owners and have a monopoly on the song eventually give in and adapt the new format, which because the new format is more desirable than the old one. People find a use for it. They it, 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 it there's this repeated thing of incredible backward hard-headedness from the folks who own the songs. And I just want to close uh, with an interesting uh, factoid, which I'll link to in the show notes of this episode, which is you were actually contacted. The, the real book was actually written. I mean, it's become so ubiquitous that we think of it in some ways as something that just sprung spontaneously into existence, but real human beings actually mm-hmm. put it together. And you were contacted by one of those human beings after you published your book, right? Yes, uh, it was put together by two students, two then students at Berkeley uh, College of Music in 1975, uh, who wanted to have a guide to jazz tunes that was much more reliable than anything that existed at that time. And they couldn't possibly come up with a licensing to pay a, a financial model to pay licensing fees that would have been financially viable. And so they did it without permission. And yet they got many of their uh, teachers to contribute their own songs. So there are effectively first edition publications of Pat Metheny tunes, Steve Swallow tunes, Chick Corea tunes, Gary Burton tunes, Mike Gibb tunes in that book alongside the standards and other things that they wrote out. Um, It's a gigantic achievement for which they can never receive accolades because they have to remain anonymous because of the threat of uh, the copyright hammer falling on their heads. Sure. So he wrote and corrected a few things that that I had uh, said in, in trying to put together this history of how the real book was written. That's fascinating. My guest is Barry Kernfeld. Uh, he's an author of Pop Song Piracy, the story of fake books, the uh, the editor of the New Grove Dictionary of Jazz, uh, both editions. And it's been just absolutely fascinating uh, to talk with you. I thank you so much for doing it, especially on such short notice. Thank you. It was fun. That's my conversation with Barry Kernfeld. Uh, I'm really grateful to Barry for coming on the show. Grateful to you for listening. Please, 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 please do one of two things. Either go to thejazzsession.com slash tour and make a one-time donation and get the thank you gifts. Uh, just a note to those of you who've already donated that uh, everyone who donates at 10 bucks or above gets a postcard from me from the road, and the first batch of those have already gone out, and the second batch are going to go out very quickly. I bought a ton of postcard stamps in Shepherdstown so that as I buy postcards in each place, I can just stick them on and toss them in a box, and I don't have to go to the post office every time which, although it proved to be interesting in Shepherdstown, uh, also took a long time. So, And if you want to know why it was interesting in Shepherdstown, just go back to the tour diaries, and uh, it'll tell you. You can also, the other thing you can do besides making this one-time donation to the tour, 
you can make a recurring donation to the show by becoming a member. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member. And that will make either a recurring monthly or yearly donation at a variety of levels to the show. By the way, last week in the same day, uh, my friend, a woman named Tony Attardo, joined the show, uh, bought a Kindle book for me for my trip via uh, com slash tour, and made a donation to the tour, the, the trifecta, in, in one day. So huge thanks to Tony. There's probably stuff I've forgotten to say, but it feels like I've talked forever. So just get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz from a totally different location on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.